1: plushcare.com slash weight loss it's
0: 1711 a young woman new to the area begins to have fits three strong men can't hold her down as she starts to regurgitate pins and buttons weeks later eight women are found guilty of witchcraft at a Carrickfergus courthouse one man is executed. It sounds like a Halloween tale, doesn't it? But it happened right here, just 40 minutes from Belfast. In this episode of The Bell Tale, we'll be looking at the infamous Isla McGee witch trials.
2: The way they looked, they set them apart, you know, and physical um, impairments, and they were facially scarred. One had fell in a fire and was burned. And at uh, this time, outward. Our visual difference was taken as a reflection of inner sinner corruption.
0: I'm joined by authors Andrew Sennon and Martina Devlin to discuss how these trials came about, what happened to the accused, and what the legacy should be for our so-called witches. Andrew Steddon is a senior lecturer in international history at the Ulster University and the author of Possessed by the Devil, the real history of the of McGee witches and Ireland's only mass witchcraft trial. Andrew, you're one of the leaders of a team at Ulster University that has been researching into these so-called witches. Could you take me back to 1711? What is the story here?
2: It started in Late October, uh, in seventeen ten, when old Missus Haltridge, she was the basically the widow of the Presbyterian minister of McGee and she starts encountering a, a a wee boy, a wee demonic figure, and all. Well, hell breaks loose basically, you know. Things start to move in their own, objects are thrown about, and she's constantly visited that this boy sporadically. And then in February um, 1711, she dies of mysterious pains on her back. Again, the the boy comes back and all the kind of um, what we would call poltergeist activity starts again. And then six days later, um, Mary Dunbar arrives from uh, Castle Ray to visit the family You know, in her time of grief. And almost immediately, she finds the old woman's bonnet wrapped up in an apron. She's not meant to touch it, she touches it and unleashes all the things that were happening before. And she starts exhibiting the symptoms of demonic possession. She starts to, you know, and convulse. She starts to, you know, go into fainting fits. She starts to see uh, figures attacking her. And then, you know, these progress over the next month, you know, and get worse and worse. And, you know, she starts to levitate and things like that. But rather than blame it on the devil directly, she blames it on eight women, local women, who who are tracked down by her description. She says she doesn't know who they are. They're tracked down. They're tested and imprisoned to wait trial where they're tried under the 1586 Irish Witchcraft Act for basically possessing Mary Dunbar and, you know, the spectral attacks and they're found guilty. Because they didn't kill her, they are uh, put in prison for a year and four times in market day in the pillory for six hours.
0: These women, was there any characteristic or anything that they would have had that would have took Mary to the conclusion that they were witches?
2: She was naming them as witches, so, <laughs> um, but it was the other people she had to convince, you know. Um, she had to convince everybody else because there's accusations coming forward in Presbyterian Island and Church of Ireland uh, as well, but they're not going anywhere. The clergy are not taking them forward at this point in time in the early 18th century, and they're not going to court usually, but this one does. And it's because largely, you know, Mary Dunbar is a very convincing witness. She's educated. She's 18. She's from a good family. The women she's accusing, on the other hand, are believable witches in the sense that they're poor. Um, Some of them have bad reputations locally for cursing and drinking and, you know, unwomanly behaviour, as it would be seen then. And also the way they, they looked you know, set them apart, you know, um, physical um, impairments and they were facially scarred. One had fell on a fire and was burned. And at this time, sometimes outward or visual difference was taken as a reflection of inner sinner corruption. So not all women who behave badly get into trouble or are accused of witchcraft, but it, it, it increased your chances and definitely not everybody who had a disability or physical impairment was, but altogether... They were the type of characters who would be across Europe, you know, more likely be accused of witchcraft.
0: Typically, when people are thinking of witches, we do think of women, but there was sort of a ninth witch who was actually the only one who was executed, and he was male.
2: We do think of women, but the um, 50,000 people executed for witchcraft that we know between, say, 1450 and 1782 high point late 1500s early 1600s 20% were men so 10,000 witches executed were men now in the big trials it's usually women but in certain parts like Iceland and parts of France and you know even Russia it's a preponderance sometimes of men but still 8% women and what happened was after the trial Mary Dunbar is meant to get better because that's why you prosecute witches you know you put them away, you stop the, the, the attacks, that's why people recourse to them or you know, and use the, the courts to do this Mary Dunbar continues afterwards, you know, and she she says that she's been attacked by more spectral figures and one of them is William Seller, now William Seller is husband to Janet Liston and father to Elizabeth Seller, who were convicted by the witches so it was a witch family And she starts saying that he's started to, you know, um, attack her. And he's, this is the brilliant thing about this trial. It's so well documented. We know what they looked like. And we know what William Seller looked like. And he was shabbily dressed, just like the other women. Obviously, um, poor. uh, and, And they're hinting that he, you know, might not be the paragon of male virtue either you know, and that's hinted at in the sources and Mary Dunbar dies three weeks after the first trial and this turns the case from just bewitchment into one, a capital crime and by a capital crime under the 1586 Witchcraft Act William Seller, who is convicted on the 11th September 1711 of Mary Dunbar's bewitchment and because she's died it's a capital crime and we're assuming that it was carried through
0: And this was the last witchcraft trial in Ireland. Witchcraft and the whole claims of witchcraft really didn't seem to take off in Ireland compared to Scotland and some other areas in Europe. Why was that?
2: Uh, You know, it was the last witch trial, but it didn't die. (laughs) Witchcraft accusation continued up to the 20th century in Ireland. I mean, the the question is, and that's why everybody will uh, I'll ask that, well, why wasn't there, you know, that many trials in Ireland, you know? Um, and people have started, tried to answer this in numerous ways by saying that, you know, the Irish Catholic, uh, Irish-speaking population didn't go to Protestant courts with their uh, witchcraft cases, but we've seen that they did with other cases, other criminal cases, so why wouldn't they with this, um, with witchcraft? So I uh, and Ronald Hutton and others started to look at belief and me in particular looking at fear levels and the the kind of the idea was that the mass of the population 8% of the population who were the uh, Irish speaking Catholic majority didn't believe in witchcraft but they did it was just a witch that was more containable, that was less frightening there was less need to try and use the courts to stop them or punish them and the reason was they didn't you know, um, the witch figure in Protestant Ulster uh, and the other places where it happened, Yole and Cork in 1661, so one of the four trials, in these places, they believed in a witch that served Satan, that harmed humans and livestock all year round. The Gaelic Irish witch, and you'll find it in the Highland Islands, Scotland, and the Isle of Man, and that type of witch just attacks milk and butter. And usually in Ireland, anyway, at times of the the ritual year, like May Eve and May Day, and they're easily contained by like magical and counter magic. So it's it's a less frightening and um, a less demonic witch, and that would explain that. So the mass of the population is not being accusations that are not going to court that are not ended up in the executions. The other part of it is, as I said, the hinted before. Even when they're making accusations, this um, 10 to 20 percent of the population, they're not going anywhere because at the point it starts taking off in Ireland in the late 17th century, trials have started to, you know, um, peter out in most parts of Europe. The big witch trials that cause hundreds of lives lost, you know, are gone mostly, you know. So it's happening at a time where witchcraft trials are in general decline.
0: The trial itself the women who were accused of this weren't allowed to give evidence in court, but did Mary Dunbar give any evidence?
2: Mary Dunbar said that William Seller had appeared to her with two other women who were never implicated on the road to Carrickfergus, and he said that he would take the tongue from her before the trial, and so she was uh, struck dumb, some people say conveniently, during the trial, and so she didn't give evidence.
0: And in this trial there is this whole idea of Mary giving spectral evidence so saying that these so-called witches could fit through keyholes. Would any judges feel unhappy with this? Did any of the judges say that it doesn't count or was everyone in agreement that these women were witches?
2: So spectral evidence was was a a funny one by 1711. Even during the Salem trials and even before that in England, there's people who don't even it, right? Um, Because for the simple reason is that the devil is a great tempter and the devil is always working illusions so the devil could be putting imaginary images into your head so that you think that you're being specially attacked but it isn't, it's just an illusion and he does this because, well, he's a devil and he's trying to get innocent people done you know, so there's people who say you know, they, they don't go, oh, that can happen on scientific terms, but they do on demonological terms, you know, and yes, there are people who don't accept this in the trial, you know, and one of the, the judges, um, Judge Anthony Upton, in fact, says, yeah, I don't think we can take these people and and, and prosecute them on the visionary images of, uh, of a girl he calls her. So, yeah, there was people who you know who raised objections to, it and it was always a fairly dodgy one, you know, um, a dodgy proof. But there was other evidence used at the trial. The fact she couldn't say the Lord's Prayer, which was uh, used for um, for witches, you know, because they couldn't say it because they were agents of the devil. Also, the stuff that she vomited up was there. But most of all the testimony of the great and the good of the area. So, I mean, these are poor women and all, you know, the best Presbyterian and Protestants in the area are arranged against them. It must have been really frightening.
0: Typically, when people think of witches from their idea of witches or pop culture, we think of their punishment being burnt at the stake or some crazy torture. But what were these women sentenced to after their conviction?
2: you usually, you know, um, burned, you know, in certain parts of, uh, of Europe with Roman law. Uh, Scotland's one of them, where they're strangled by hand and then burned to purify the ashes. But in Ireland, it has English common law, so you're not allowed to torture for a confession. And it's actually quite hard to get somebody prosecuted, you know. They have to go through a lot of hoops. And even if they would, because there is common law and they're not being burned as heretics, they're being, you know... Um, they're being killed as criminals. They would have been hung if that was the case, you know. Um, And they just narrowly avoided that because they tried to pin on the day of the trial old Mrs Haltridge's death on them. But what they were done for under the 1586 Irish Witchcraft Act was bewitchment. And it was a year in jail and four times in the pillory. Now jail wasn't designed for containment. It was designed to hold you to your trial. And so um, we know in 1776 in the new improved Carrick-Fergus jail, it was horrendous. It was full of uh, disease and syphilis and, you know, starvation. And that was the new improved one. So you can imagine what it was like in 1711.
0: So following the trial, what happened to the women? Did this follow them forever?
2: It would have done, I imagine, but we don't know. I mean, they're poor. Um we don't know what happened to them. I mean, we don't. It's, it's surprising how much you, you know about people in the sixteenth and seventeenth century, and especially the poor. Absolutely, no idea. But we know from other cases that it, it hangs on them, it hangs on their families, um, and I imagine it was a completely traumatic experience. You're not going to come out of that if you come out of it.
0: After all this time, do you think? that the women and the man involved, should they be pardoned or like some councillors have said in the area, they were tried in a righteous court of law and we have no right to pardon them?
2: I I think it's, you know, it comes from the communities and if the community feels that they, you know, they need pardon, absolutely, you know, um, and I know that that's what's happening in so many parts of the world that happened in the Basque regions. It's happening in Scotland. There was, um, you know, Witches of Scotland uh, campaign to basically have them pardoned. You know, And I, yeah, I, I would be behind it. I am just glad that now that there has been a a, a plaque put up in England McGee, we have done an exhibition. There's been books written about it. People know about it. They're remembered and their stories remembered. I mean, I think that's the main important thing, to, to understand... What happened, you know, I don't think we'll learn much from history sometimes, but, you know, it is a good way to understand exclusion and naming and inequality and gender violence, you know. It's all there in witch trials.
0: Andrew, thank you very much. Now we're going to be joined by author and columnist Martina Devlin. Martina Devlin is the author of The House Where It Happened, a fictional version of this story. She has campaigned for the women to be pardoned for the past decade and was part of a memorial plaque being established in March 2023. Martina, you're very welcome to The Bell Tell. Hello. I know you've wrote your book on this story, but why was it so important for you to get campaigning for these women to try and get them pardoned and get the plaque erected in Isla McGee?
1: These were poor women. There is no such thing as a witch. Um, And and I think that that's why it's so important to recognize that this lingering injustice needs to be overturned. Um, Recording their names in public on the plaque helps. Um, It's important because they'd all but dropped out of history and this recognizes what happened to them. But it's still unfinished business because the convictions stand. Um, To actually overturn them, that requires the monarch. So King Charles to extend the royal prerogative of mercy—that's an extremely rare occurrence, and it requires top-level political buy-in. I, I was fortunate in that I had local political buy-in uh, to um, have the plaque put up. Although, you know, it wasn't just down to me by any means. Um, it was—it resulted thanks to stellar support from an Alliance councillor in Island McGee, Maeve Donnelly. Um, because although I persuaded the local authority to pass a motion supporting the plaque back in 2014, Uh, some parties opposed it, some abstained. It was carried, and I was invited to write the wording, but nothing happened. And for years, I kept asking, why not? And it turned out there was resistance at local political level, along the lines of, well, how do we know there weren't witches? And fears were even expressed that a plaque would become a shrine to paganism. So I, you know, for years and years, I kept trying, wrote other novels, couldn't forget about the Island McGee, so-called witches, and I lobbied ministers, MPs, MLAs, councillors, tourism officials, and civil servants. And Councillor Donnelly's intervention last year was the turning point in delivering the memorial. You know, she understood how this would be a significant event, not just for the local area, which is the. Mid and East Antrim Borough Council, but for Ireland as a whole, where selective silence marks our history in all sorts of ways. So, the Mayor Noah Williams actually unveiled the plaque at the Goblins Visitor Centre and Island McGee in March. Uh, it would be wonderful if there could be um, guilty verdicts overturned because that has happened elsewhere. It's a necessary act of restitution. Massachusetts law, in fact, pardoned the Salem witches and the Scottish Parliament is considering a pardon for its witch hunts. These people were humiliated, imprisoned, punished and ostracised for a crime they could not possibly have committed. And acknowledging they were wronged is the very least we can do. It's justice delayed, but it's still justice.
0: That's very interesting. It's hard to believe that even in the 21st century, that councillors would still be concerned about if these women were witches. Obviously, the story has really resonated with you. So why did you think the plaque was so important to get up?
1: Really, I felt this was fascinating. And I wrote a novel inspired by the case. And really, for me, that should have been that. But I just couldn't forget the story of the so-called witches. I was bothered by the way they'd been silenced twice over. At their trial, when their innocence was denied, and by history, which had all but eliminated them. So I thought at the very least, there should be a plaque listing their names in the area where they came from. I thought it would perhaps prompt inquiries and perhaps schools would teach the story and people would remember them.
0: Well, I think they're definitely remembered. You worked with a lot of historians when you were writing your book and trying to get stuff together for it. But were there any interesting characters that you came across in your research? Uh, I did meet a descendant of
1: one of them uh, and uh, he showed me something called the witch's stone with sort of long scratch marks on it. And legend had it that that was uh, one of the women being dragged away and had held onto the stone and her nails had left that mark. Obviously, that's unlikely, but it's... uh, it's a very appealing story. And uh, since I've written the novel, I have been contacted by other people, both in this part of the world and much further afield, saying that they think that they're possibly descended from them or their granny said they might be. But it's uh, it was interesting to meet somebody who still lived in the area and who was willing to say, yes, I, I you know, that was my great, great, however many great's grandmother.
0: Martina, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tell was produced by myself, Olivia Peden, with Graham Davidson.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.